Good morrow, friends. This is Jordan, and you're listening to Not Strictly History. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Not Strictly History. It's great to be here with you today. I feel like I'm an old radio announcer. And extra read all about it, because that's exactly what they said. Um, Welcome. Hello, everybody. So today we are once again um, recording at my writing rolltop desk. However, I have changed some things up because I noticed that while the audio last week wasn't terrible, it did have this slightly echoey thing going on. It was like it kind of had some heartbreak hotel energy. So I've added some pillows into the desk and hopefully that can... um, help us moving forward. So that's exciting news. And today, I'm really excited about our episode today. It's probably going to be our longest episode so far. And there is just so much to get through, but there is so many wonderful things in it. And I am just truly, truly excited to be here with you today and to be going into this story. This episode took me a very long time to write, actually. And by that, I mean, I think it took like two weeks, but It's because um, not only is there a lot to it, but it's actually a really heavy story as well. Um, Just need to tell you that right off the bat. There's a lot of issues and heavy things going on in this story. We talk about drug use. We talk about a lot of things with racism. There's a lot going on. So just be forewarned about that. But there's also just so many interesting and wonderful things in this story that I just had a really hard time cutting anything out. So we'll probably be here for a little bit, but that's okay because I'm really enjoying the longer episodes. And so far, all of you guys are too, which is really exciting. So let's begin. Today, we're going to start in the year 1939. And um, it's nighttime in New York City. You and your lover, significant other, Um, partner in crime, whoever you decide to go out with that night, are going out for the evening. And you're on your way to a very well-known and quite swanky nightclub in Greenwich Village called Cafe Society. This nightclub is a lot of things, okay? It has been open for only a year at this point, and it's known as the first integrated nightclub in New York City. Whether or not this is actually true? Well, accounts tend to say that black customers were mostly barred unless they were prominent in the entertainment industry. However, the club did pride itself on treating both black and white customers equally. So that's a can of worms for another time. But when you arrive here, you can expect to encounter a few different things. A very plush atmosphere, the blue haze of cigarette smoke, and glittering glasses full of various drinks. You know that the proprietor of this establishment, one Barney Josephson, is very politically minded and sees the club as similar to European clubs, a place where you can enjoy yourself but also engage in the societal issues of the time. So tonight, when you arrive at Cafe Society and are shown to your seat, you notice a new performer on the stage, a young woman that you don't remember seeing before. 
you hear whispers that she's been singing around town at various clubs and you ask somebody close to you what's her name and they answer you by saying billy holiday before you can respond you are swept away by this woman's intimate sounding voice the way that it seems as though she's telling you the deepest details of her life and then the music for the final song begins to play and the waiters begin hushing the audience all around you as you watch the room grows completely quiet all of the movement ceases and all of the lights are dimmed when the light finally does come back on it is but a single spotlight illuminating the face of this one young woman as she begins singing. It may seem like I'm taking a little bit of artistic license in this story, but this is actually completely accurate to what happened at the time. Obviously, today we are talking about the one and only, the mysterious, the lovely, the incredible Billie Holiday. And this scenario that I have placed us in is one that truly happened when Billy would perform what would eventually become one of her most well-known songs. Maybe you've heard of it and maybe you haven't, but it is the song Strange Fruit. Billy began singing this song while she was working as a singer at Cafe Society. She came into the club as a nobody and she left the club two years later as a star, in part due to this song. Every time she performed it at Cafe Society, Everyone in the audience was hushed during the introduction music. All of the movement ceased and the lights went down. And as Billy began to sing, one lone spotlight would just light up just her face. And as she sang the final note, all of the lights went back out. And when the house lights came back up, Billy was gone. There would be no encore. This performance was, was the end of it. It was... It was all about this song, Strange Fruit. And now we're gonna, we're gonna talk a lot about this song, actually. We're gonna talk about it a lot later because it's very important and deserves its own little moment in the episode. But I want us to be able to experience this moment for ourselves as much as possible. And I thought about playing the song for you because I remember I did that last, ep- last season, not last episode. Last season, I did a musical episode and I put songs into it, but this time I'm just gonna read you the lyrics because they're so powerful that I just want you to be immersed in the lyrics. So if you'll indulge me, close your eyes, place yourself in this beautiful nightclub on a night in 1939 in New York City. All of the lights have just gone out. These are the words of the song that you hear. Southern trees bear a strange fruit, blood on the leaves and blood on the root. Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze, strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. Pastoral scene of the gallant south, the bulging eyes and the twisted mouth. Scent of magnolias sweet and fresh, then the sudden smell of burning flesh. Here is a fruit for the crows to pluck, for the rain to gather, for the wind to suck. For the sun to rot, for the tree to drop. Here is a strange and bitter crop. Our larger story begins much earlier than this night in 1939 in New York City. It actually begins in the 1910s in Baltimore, Maryland, with a young teenage couple who discovers that they are expecting a baby. 
And when this news comes out, the young woman, Sarah Fagan, who went by Sadie, was very unfortunately kicked out of the house by her parents because she had become pregnant. At this point, she went to stay with her older half-sister, who was named Ava Miller. Now, Sadie's boyfriend, named Clarence Halliday, he may or may not have been living there also. It's really iffy. On the, the information is spotty here. But he was around for quite a while. And on April 7th, 1915, Sadie gave birth to a little girl who they named Eleonora. And you've probably guessed by now that this baby girl named Eleonora is the subject of our episode today, the legendary Billie Holiday. Now, she did not take the name Billie Holiday until she began singing professionally a little bit later, but I'm just going to start calling her Billie from the beginning in order to avoid any confusion. But just so you know, Billie Holiday's birth name is Eleonora. So not long after Billy was born, Clarence left Sadie and Billy in order to pursue a career in the musical world of jazz. We got a winner right there. Um, so anyway, pretty much from the beginning, Sadie and Billy were on their own. Sadie actually did end up marrying a man by the name of Philip Goff in 1920, but this marriage only lasted two years. However, Sadie Fagan was not the kind of woman to let her circumstances rule everything, and she was always working in order to support herself and her baby girl. She is a very inspiring and just incredible person, in my opinion. Um, at this time, she got jobs that were known as transportation jobs, which were basically just jobs as a server on passenger railways. The nature of this work, however, meant that Sadie was gone a lot of the time. And as such, Billie Holiday's early years were spent largely in the care of her aunt's mother-in-law, a woman named Martha Miller. Now, Billie Holiday did eventually write an autobiography with the help of another author, but even in this work, the details about her childhood are very scant and inconsistent, so there really isn't much known about her early years. However, we do know that she really did suffer quite a bit from her mother constantly working and having, and the fact that she was just in the care of others all the time, it was really hard for her. After Billie Holiday attended kindergarten, she frequently skipped school. Which, like, what? How does an actual small child skip school? I have a lot of questions. And again, unfortunately, we just don't have a lot of answers about her very early years. I don't understand how a five-year-old just starts skipping school. I really don't. But that's what happened. And her truancy eventually resulted in Billy being brought before a juvenile court on January 5th, 1925, at the age of nine years old. At this point, she was sent to the house of the Good Shepherd Catholic Reform School and was baptized on March 19th, 1925. She was then, you know, quote unquote, paroled after nine months and put back in the care of her mother on October 2nd, 1925. Now, around this time, Sadie stopped working in transportation jobs and embarked upon a new business venture. She opened a restaurant in Baltimore called the East Side Grill, and mother and daughter both worked very, very long hours there. As you can imagine, starting a restaurant is a huge deal, and they were pretty much doing it alone. And so Billy eventually ended up dropping out of school at the age of 11. So they were working really, really hard and doing their best, but 
while we're still near the beginning of everything, it's really important for me to let you know that there is so much sadness in their life. They both went through so much. But again, we can look to Sadie, especially as an example of resilience. We see often how she fought for both herself and her daughter, how she was always working hard. And um, that is very remarkable in the light of everything that they experienced. Now, one example of this is that on December 24th, 1926, um, Billy was 11 years old at this point, Sadie came home from work to find a neighbor named Wilbur Rich attempting to rape Billy. However, they she fought him back and um, Rich was arrested, which is very, very good. Officials then placed Billy Holiday back in the house of the Good Shepherd under protective custody because she was now a state's witness in the rape case. So they needed to keep her protected, basically. And she was released two months later in February of 1927, when she was almost 12. At this point, um, now actually, let me just pause for a second. There actually, I was not able to find any more information on this Wilbur Rich character and what his sentence was or how he got punished or anything like that, um, which is really, really unfortunate. But he's never mentioned again, so hopefully Billy and her mother never had to come in contact with him again and um, they were able to get that kind of sorted out, I guess. So after she's released from protective custody, she starts running errands. Her job is running errands at a brothel. And she also scrubbed the marble steps outside as well as kitchen and bathroom floors all throughout the neighborhood. Now, around this time, when she's 11 slash 12, doing all of these odd jobs, this is when Billie Holiday first starts to hear the records of Louis Armstrong and Bessie Smith. She would start singing along to these records as she worked and she would figure out her own style and realized her love of singing. And she cited West End Blues as an intriguing influence in her life. She said that the scat section duet with the clarinet was her favorite part in the song. And as we go along, you'll see kind of why something like this would impact her and her voice so much. It's really, really important at this time to just take a tiny minute to talk about the fact that Billie Holiday was growing up in Baltimore in the 1920s, in the time and place where jazz was evolving and thriving. She was exposed to so much that would inspire her musically and push her to pursue her own passions and music. Now, she clearly wasn't in a good environment for a child to be in, but the places that she was working in and around would have had musicians and music galore. So in a lot of ways, she was right in the middle of this growing musical movement. In 1928, Sadie decided that Baltimore was not the place for them anymore, and she wanted to find better jobs to give them a better life. So Sadie moved to Harlem, New York. Um, she left Billy with Martha Miller once again, just for a little while until she got settled in in New York. And then Billy joined her mother there in early 1929. So once Billy had moved to New York with her mother, she began showing up at various jazz clubs around town in order to audition and sing with the resident pianists. She was given a lot of debut gigs at various nightclubs in Harlem, where she would share the tips with dancers and comedians who were also on the bill. But we just need to provide a little bit of perspective to all of this, okay? So Billy is actually out in the musical scene in Harlem, New York, working at nightclubs and earning money 
and she was only 16 years old. It's insane, okay? It's it's absolutely insane. And it's also at this time that Billy, who, remember, she was born Eleanor Fagan, she decided to adopt a stage name. Now, she took the name Billy from her favorite actress of the day, a woman named Billy Dove, and the name Holiday you actually came from her biological father. If you'll remember, her father's name was Clarence Halliday. And when he left them to pursue his jazz career, he changed his last name up just a little bit from Halliday to Holiday, which Billy then decided to adopt. So pretty much from the very beginning of her career, she was known as Billy Holiday. And now that we've touched upon the very start of Billy's career, we need to pause for just a minute and talk about something. How and why she was able to so quickly become a household name and what so many musicians both then and now admire about her. One thing that is really important to know about Billie Holiday is that she never received any kind of formal or technical musical training, and she also never learned how to read music. However, she very quickly became a hugely active participant in a little something called, I don't know, the Harlem Renaissance. Big deal. Look it up, big boy. In the most vibrant jazz scene in the whole country. And it was also transitioning into the swing era. So there is a lot about Billie's life. We've talked about this. There is a lot about Billie Holiday's life that is tragic and perhaps even just simply very unlucky. But much of the time, she was really in the right places at the right times, as far as her career was concerned. So again, she never received any training, but she was just absolutely remarkable in her style. You only have to just dip your toe into the life of Billie Holiday to find countless reports from history's top musicians about how her unique style completely reinvented the conventions of modern singing and performance. To this day, her legacy embodies what is elegant and cool in contemporary music. She had what has been called, quote, an evocative, soulful voice, which she boldly put forth as a source for good. She had a very instinctive sense of musical structure, and she had experience gathered at the root level of jazz and blues. We talked about this a teeny bit, but being around jazz and blues as they were growing and evolving in the neighborhood clubs of this country gave her a kind of experience with the music that you can't teach. And her singing style was really just deeply moving and very individual. And she often said that her vocal style was strongly inspired by jazz instrumentalists. She pioneered a new way of manipulating phrasing and tempo and she was known for her vocal delivery and improv skills. Billie Holiday has rightfully been seen by many as a musical genius, because even without any kind of training, her syncopations, phrasing, and the way that she could dramatically embody any song made her the outstanding jazz singer of her day. It was often said that her musical intensity made it so that the very most boring lyrics, the most mundane song ever, could become profound. And... It's just incredible that Billy is, she deserves all of this praise and more, and you're going to, we're going to talk about all of that. So let's go back to our timeline. So Billy is 16 years old, singing professionally in New York. At this time, she performed at several clubs, such as the Grey Dawn, Pods and Jerry's on 133rd Street, and the Brooklyn Elks Club. 
In fact, legendary jazz musician Benny Goodman, ever heard of him? You should have, later spoke about how he remembered watching her perform in 1931 at a club called The Bright Spot. When I hear stories like this, it sends, it makes my voice crack, obviously, but it also sends me just into, into some kind of universe. Legendary crossovers like this are just chef's kiss. So listen, Benny Goodman and Billie Holiday did eventually end up working together, so that's like a whole thing. But him talking about this singular moment is, is different than that. He had no clue who she was at this point. She was nobody at this point, and actually neither was he. And he can remember hearing her sing at this random nightclub in New York. So just this idea of legends encountering each other before they became legends, there is something so magical and unexplainably beautiful about that. I love it so much. And it's also at this time that Billy reconnected with her father, Clarence Holiday, who was playing the guitar in Fletcher Henderson's band. And I couldn't find a lot of information about this reconnection, how it happened, or really what their relationship was like after this. But we'll talk a little bit more about her father later. So I think we can at least assume that it was all mostly positive. After some time going around and singing at all of these various clubs, Billy got a more permanent gig in late 1932. She became a singer at a club on 132nd Street called Coven's, replacing the singer that they had had before, one Monette Moore. And don't forget, Billy was 17, 17 years old at this time. This was when, again, Billy finds herself in a situation where she's just in the right place at the right time with her career. One night, a very well-known music producer by the name of John Hammond came to Coven's in order to hear Manette Moore sing. He was a big fan of her, and he didn't know that she had been replaced. So when he comes to hear her sing, he actually ends up hearing Billie Holiday sing, and this was in early 1933. Hammond was immediately intrigued and impressed with Billie, and he said to himself, hey, there's something going on here, and I better check it out. Verbatim, that's what he said. So let's pause again for just a second and think about this. Billy is 17 years old. She's been singing professionally for several years at this point. She already has more life and career experience than many people far older than her. This absolutely came out in her performances and, and in just who she was as a person. So once John Hammond heard her sing and wanted to work with her, it wasn't long before she was doing more than just singing in clubs. Billie Holiday made her recording debut in November 1933 at the age of 18. These recordings were done with several different musicians, Benny Goodman among them. You thought I was done talking about Benny Goodman, didn't you? No, I'll tell you who he was. He is an absolutely legendary clarinetist. And at this time, again, he wasn't really anybody yet. He was on the verge of his own stardom. So we have this story of legends interacting and working together before they become legends. And the purity in it just really gets to me. But Billy, her first records were a song called Your Mother's Son-in-Law and another called Riffin' the Scotch. The first song sold 300 copies. Not great, really, but it was, it was okay. However, the other song, Riff and the Scotch, released on November 11th, 1933, sold 5 
thousand copies. It was literally one of her very first professional releases. Her second, it was her second professional releases. It was, wow, I'm just, I, there's a lot of feelings going on. It was her second professional release and it was her very first hit. So I'm telling you guys, legendary. And John Hammond was obviously feeling great about this. He was very impressed with Billie and her singing style. He later said, quote, her singing almost changed my music tastes and my musical life because she was the first girl singer I'd come across who actually sang like an improvising jazz genius, which is lovely. He also compared her favorably to Louis Armstrong and said that she had a good sense of lyrical content at a young age. Which, if you'll remember, Louis Armstrong was one of Billy's musical inspirations and idols in the first place. So this was really high praise and a wonderful thing to say about her. So Billy has recorded some songs. She's released them. They've done well. We're really rolling. And this was at the end of 1933. Just a little bit over a year later, in the beginning of 1935, this is when Billy's career really takes a lot of leaps. It was a huge year for her, the year when her career really started to accelerate. She made her very first little movement into film. So maybe you didn't know that about Billie Holiday, but she dabbled in the motion picture world. She did. In 1935, she played a small role in a musical short film by legendary musician Duke Ellington, I didn't go very far into this film or what her role was, but she did sing a song in the scene in her scene called Saddest Tale. Also in 1935, Billy signed with a record label called Brunswick Records. So she signs with this label and she is still working with producer John Hammond. At this time, jukeboxes were getting really big and the, the jukebox trade was booming, basically. So John Hammond introduced the idea of Billy recording some pop tunes with well-known pianist Teddy Wilson, but he wanted her to perform these songs in a swing style. So since both Teddy and Billy were jazz musicians, they were known for their improvisational skills when it came to their music. So they were allowed to improvise on the material. And Billy's improvisation of melody fit every emotion. It was just this way... It was this it was this thing that she had really invented, the way that she could improvise on the melody and change it in order to fit the emotion of the song. And it was absolutely revolutionary. So this series of recordings that she did with Teddy Wilson, as well as different members of Count Basie's band, brought wide recognition and launched Billy's career as a leading jazz singer of her time. She and Teddy Wilson would continue making hit after hit for several more years. And so, as I mentioned, 1935 was a really big year for Billy. But never fear, my friends, because the rest of the 1930s were just as legendary for her career. In 1936, she began a legendary string of collaborations with tenor sax giant Lester Young. And we need to talk about Lester Young and also Billy's relationship with Lester Young. Again, Lester Young was a fabulous saxophone player. He was a really big deal. And it was often said that his saxophone was the perfect, quote, trading partner for Billy's voice. Teaming up with him was great for Billy and for her career, but it was a lot more than this, honestly. Billy and Lester became absolutely legendary musical partners. Their style together was spectacular. It was said later that 
The years spent with Lester and the recordings that they made marked some of the best recordings ever of the interplay between a vocalist and an instrumental obligato. They became the very best of friends as well. Lester actually boarded with Billy's mother for a while in 1934. And it's important to note that absolutely nowhere, ever, ever, anywhere, did I find any evidence or is there really any evidence that they were ever romantically involved. And this makes their relationship just so much more intriguing and beautiful. They were truly the very, very best of friends. They were connected by their art and their mutual love of music. They had such a wonderful relationship. And as you may or may not know, Billie Holiday is often referred to as Lady Day. And this nickname actually came from Lester Young. And she named him Prez, and um, these nicknames stuck to both of them. But again, this relationship, this friendship was just really, really glorious, even outside of their music, and it absolutely bled into their music. I, When I think of Billie Holiday and Lester Young, I really think of them kind of like soulmates, just the kind of souls that know and love each other and share so much passion. And it's kind of this connection on just a, a different level entirely. Lester later said, quote, I think you can hear that on some of the old records, you know. Sometime I sit down and listen to him myself and it sounds like two of the same voices or the same mind or something like that. And I just have all of the heart eyes at that quote. So don't forget that along with working with Lester Young, Billy was also still recording with jazz pianist Teddy Wilson, and they were just churning out hits one by one. These collaborations resulted in the song What a Little Moonlight Can Do, and this song became a jazz standard. It's often also called her claim to fame. What's really important about this song, What a Little Moonlight Can Do, is that before it was released, her recording studio, they were not super into her style in general. They possibly wanted her to conform more to traditional styles, like like the singer Cleo Brown, who was really popular at that time. But after the success of What a Little Moonlight Can Do, the studio kind of backed off and considered her an artist in her own right, which they very well should have. However, this is not where the ridiculousness of her record label stopped, unfortunately. If you'll remember, at this point, she is signed with a company called Brunswick Records. And the story goes that at this point, Brunswick was completely broke and thus unable to record many jazz tunes. There was actually a reason, though, that a lot of jazz musicians went there to record their work. Artists like Billie Holiday, Teddy Wilson, and Lester Young came into the studio without written arrangements. Not only did this greatly reduce recording costs, but it allowed for the improvisation, which was a hallmark of jazz and, you know, everything that these musicians were talking about. So... You know, it's really it's really interesting little moment. But because the record label was overall quite broke, instead of paying Billie Holiday royalties for her work, they only paid her a flat rate. This, of course, saved them money and is also absolute garbage. For example, she had a record called I Cried For You that ended up selling 15,000 copies. 15,000 copies! And John Hammond called it a giant hit for Brunswick. He said that most records that made money around in those times really only sold around three or four thousand. So she's just churning out hits, massive hits, and not getting the royalties that she deserved, which is absolutely astonishing. I'm not shocked because it's America 
in the 30s, but I'm just upset. We now find ourselves in a phase of Billy's life and career that is very, very important and incredibly impressive, although it didn't last long. However, this is the big band phase of Billy's life and career. And before we move on into this phase, we've got to talk about big bands and the big band phase of America as far as music goes, because it will help provide some context and it's very, very important. So at this time in music, being a solo artist, it just really wasn't a thing. People weren't going to clubs necessarily to hear a specific person or or anything. People were more intrigued and excited about the music itself. Because if you'll remember, the jukebox is just barely becoming a thing, right? The, the jukebox is this moment where you can actually go pick a song by a specific artist that you really like. And this is the first time that this is really happening. So at this time, everything is a lot more about the music itself than about the artist. And so you could be a solo artist at this time, but you weren't really anything without a big band behind you because a big band is all about the music. So singers at this time really needed to be affiliated with or associated with a big band in order to both be successful and in order to reach the audiences that they wanted to reach. At this time, there were several very important big bands in the United States, and the competition between them was very, very fierce and ruthless. So in late 1937, Billy became the vocalist for one of the best big bands in the country, the Count Basie Orchestra. By this time, Billy's recordings had really propelled her into a huge force and a big name, so having her as part of the Count Basie Orchestra was a huge deal. Now listen, due to time and how deeply I dug into this episode, I'm not going to go into who Count Basie was because that deserves its own episode, but I will say that he was an absolutely phenomenal musician who made such a difference in the world of music. If you'll remember, some of his some members of his band had already been on some of Billy's recordings previously, which is a huge deal. So we love and admire Count Basie. He's an icon. I absolutely love him. I can't even tell you how much I love Count Basie because he's incredible. But again, I, I don't have time to talk about that in this episode. So I recommend that you go look him up because he's great. So Billy was hired by Count Basie as the vocalist for his orchestra and she joined them on tour. And even though this was, this was a really great opportunity for her and a very iconic pairing, again, the competition between bands, the way that the music industry was at the time, it was it was pretty ruthless. So traveling conditions were poor, and they usually were just playing one-nighters and club after club with very little stability. And Billy was obviously not used to this. She usually sang either in one club or just a small group of clubs, or she was recording. So this was not something that she was used to. It wasn't really her scene. But she was allowed to have fairly heavy involvement in the band, which is a huge deal because it's not, it wasn't really a thing. The vocalist was just another member of the band at this point. It was the Count Basie band, which means that he's in charge of what they perform and how they play it. So the fact that Billy was given this kind of say is really unusual and it's very important to note. She chose the songs that she sang and she had a hand in all of the musical arrangements. At this time, she chose to portray her developing persona as a woman unlucky in love. And Count Basie later said that he grew used to her involvement in the band. He said, quote, when she rehearsed with the band, it was really just a matter of getting her tunes like she wanted them. 
because she knew how she wanted to sound and you couldn't tell her what to do. I love everything about this. And again, it's really important that Billy was given so much say in the band because for the millionth time, this just wasn't a thing for the vocalist. So I think this shows not only how wonderful she was, but it shows how sweeping her style was. It shows how influential she and her musical style were becoming. And some of the songs that she performed with Count Basie are recorded. However, they never got to record in the studio together, which is very unfortunate. But there's drama, my friends. At this time, Billy was also in direct competition with another female jazz singer who was a pretty big deal. I don't know if you've heard of her. Um, Ella Fitzgerald. I freaking love Ella Fitzgerald so much. So much. She's obviously phenomenal. I mean, she's Ella freaking Fitzgerald. However, their styles were very, very different. So the competition between them was very real and incredibly fierce. They later became really, really good friends, actually. Ella Fitzgerald and Billie Holiday later became good friends. But at this point, they're being pitted against each other. They're not allowed to be friends. So at this time, Ella is the vocalist for the Chick Webb Band, which was, of course, in direct competition with the Count Basie Band. So there's a lot of teams just glaring at each other across the field at this point. That's basically what happening. what's happening at this point. So the epitome of all of this was on January 16th, 1938. Now, interestingly enough, on this day, our friend Benny Goodman had an absolutely legendary jazz concert at Carnegie Hall that was a really, really big deal. But unknown to many people, across town at the Savoy Ballroom, there was a full-blown, legit battle of the big bands happening. Count Basie and Billie Holiday competed against the Chick Webb Band and Ella Fitzgerald. It was a legit battle of the bands. According to Downbeat Magazine, which was a kind of Bible for jazz lover lovers, it was declared that Billy and Count Basie were the winners. However, Metronome Magazine declared that Ella Fitzgerald and Chick Webb were the winners. And Ella and Chick also won a straw poll of the audience by a three to one margin. Now listen to me. I don't even care about who won or anything. I just truly wish I could have witnessed the meeting of that many legendary musicians in one place performing their hearts out. It's the most incredible thing I think I've ever heard. Can you imagine being there for something like that? Mind blowing. By the next month, February of 1938, Billie was no longer singing for the Count Basie Band. There are various theories about why she was fired. As far as I could tell, Billie Holiday never spoke about it herself. However, one Jimmy Rushing, Basie's male vocalist, called her unprofessional. He said that perhaps she was fired for being temperamental and unreliable. He also said that she complained of low pay and poor working conditions. And he also hinted that she possibly refused to sing requested songs or to change her style. Just very quickly, okay, I don't know Jimmy Rushing, so I can't really judge. However, none of this has ever been corroborated by literally anyone, and Count Basie himself never said anything like that. 
So could these possibly just be the words of a man who didn't like being overshadowed by a female vocalist when they both worked for the same band? I don't know, and I can't say. I'm just going to leave that out there for you to, to decide for yourselves. So one month after leaving the Count Basie band, March of 1938, Billie Holiday was hired to sing for another big band. And this was the Artie Shaw Band. And you guys, this is such a big deal. This pairing is huge. It's absolutely, like, I'm stuttering because it's such a big deal. This association placed Billie Holiday among the first black women to work with an all-white orchestra. This is also the very first time that a full-time female black singer toured the segregated United States with a white band leader. Shaw was known to stand up for her in situations where there was a lot of racial tension. There was a time when she was not allowed on the bandstand, but Artie pushed and said he wanted her there because she was part of his band. There were many times when she was heckled by the audience. There is a story that at one performance, a man called her the N-word, which is really, really, really vile. He told her to sing a different song. And she got so mad at him that she actually had to be escorted off the stage to prevent further ruckus. In March of 1938, there was increased exposure of this Shaw and Billy team. And it was on a popular and powerful New York radio station. And there were very positive views all around. Many people said that she had improved greatly and that the band itself was in the top brackets of bands. And she, the thing is, though, that Billie Holiday did not sing as much in Artie Shaw's shows as she had in Basie's. So the repertoire of the band was more instrumental and it had fewer vocals. And then Artie Shaw was pressured into hiring a white singer, a woman by the name of Nita Bradley. Billie and Nita did not get along, but they had to share a bandstand. It was just the way that it was. In May of 1938, Artie Shaw won a battle against Tommy Dorsey and Red Norvo and the audience favored Billy. Again, and I'm just, I, I, I'm stuttering because there's, there's just frequent battles of big bands going on, and I didn't know that was a thing, and I love it so much. So Artie Shaw said of Billie Holiday that she had a remarkable ear and a remarkable sense of time, but her time with the band was nearing an end. In November of 1938, Billy was asked to use the service elevator at the Lincoln Hotel in New York City instead of the regular elevator because there were some white patrons who complained. And many people think that this was probably just the last straw for her because she left the band shortly after. She later said, quote, I was never allowed to visit the bar or the dining room as did other members of the band, and I was made to enter and leave through the kitchen, which is just appalling very appalling, but we're not here to talk about segregation because we'd be here for a really long time. There are no surviving live recordings of Billy with Artie Shaw's band. They were only able to make one record together. It was called Any Old Time. And however, he did play the clarinet on some songs that she recorded. So at this point in her career, Billie Holiday had toured with Count Basie and Artie Shaw. She had a string of radio and retail hits with Teddy Wilson, she was a very established artist in the recording industry. Her songs, What a Little Moonlight Can Do and Easy, Easy Living were imitated by artists across America and had quickly become jazz standards. So there's a lot of positivity happening in her career 
and it's a very, very big deal. So do you remember at the beginning of our episode how we took a trip to 1939 and we went to a show at the Cafe Society nightclub in New York? Good. It's time to go back there. Starting in 1939, Billy began performing at the Cafe Society nightclub in Manhattan that was owned and run by Barney Josephson. It was here that she was introduced to the poem Strange Fruit, which was a horrific depiction of lynching in the southern United States. This song became a hallmark of Billie Holiday's concerts. Scholars consider it to be the first protest song of the civil rights era. And we need to spend some time talking about Strange Fruit because it's just, I can't even, I cannot emphasize enough. There's no overemphasizing how important this song is. And it is one of the things that I did a deep dive into because this song was not only so important to Billy's career, but it was honestly so impactful in society. And we need to talk about it. So this song was originally a poem written by one Abel Mirapol. And Mirapol was a Jewish school teacher from the Bronx. When writing this poem, he used the pseudonym Lewis Allen. He then set this poem to music and he performed it at teachers' union meetings. If you'll recall from the beginning, when I read you the lyrics, this is a very, very, very intense poem. It is about lynching in the Southern United States, which is so important to talk about truly it especially at that time it was horrifically rampant and it's if you just wow it's a very very heavy topic but it is so important to talk about and again at this time it was happening constantly it was happening all the time so this poem that later became a song was a very big deal and it was very very important there are some very important things about all of this, but let's let's move on before I just completely go off on another side road. So there are some facts about the writer of this poem slash song that I just have to share. After the conviction and execution of Ethel and Julius Rosenberg for espionage in 1953 during the early Cold War, Abel Maripol and his wife Anne adopted and raised the Rosenberg's two sons, Michael and Robert. Now, if you don't know who Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were, I'll just briefly tell you. They were convicted of spying in World War II with the whole atomic bomb thing. And it's a really big story and it's actually really intriguing. So I would highly recommend you go look into it. But we we love a good crossover. So Mirapol and his wife adopted their two sons after they were executed for espionage. And again, Abel Mirapol was a teacher, he was a songwriter, and he was also a member of the American Communist Party. He first published Strange Fruit in a union publication in 1937, and then he later set it to music. So let's go through these lyrics one more time, because they're very important. Southern trees bear a strange fruit, blood on the leaves and blood on the root, black bodies swinging in the southern breeze, strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. Pastoral scene of the gallant south, the bulging eyes and the twisted mouth, scent of magnolias sweet and fresh, then the sudden smell of burning flesh. Here is a fruit for the crows to pluck, for the rain to gather, for the wind to suck, for the root to rot, for the tree to drop. Here is a strange and bitter crop. 
honestly, I wish that I could spend more time talking about Strange Fruit. I'd love to dive into these lyrics with you and just talk more about the song in general. But we're going to move on, as you can tell. Again, very, very intense lyrics. I highly recommend that you go listen to Strange Fruit as performed by Billie Holiday and even look more into the song. Um, because again, I cannot stress enough how important this song is and was. So this song was eventually heard by Barney Josephson, who introduced the song to Billie Holiday. It was at this time that Billie was, um, she was recording for Columbia at the time that she was introduced to Strange Fruit. And this is important because after getting to know the song and performing it, Billie wanted to record it. But let's start off with the performances first. As you know, Billie Holiday first performed it at Cafe Society in 1939. But what you probably didn't know is that Billie had some trepidation about performing this song. She feared possible retaliation. As you can probably imagine, I would be terrified to perform this song if I were her, so it's incredible that she did so. She later said that the imagery of the song reminded her of her father's death and that this played a role in her resistance to performing it. Billy talked about how her father, Clarence Holiday, was denied um, medical treatment for a fatal lung disorder because of his race. She said, quote, It reminds me of how Pop died, but I have to keep singing it, not only because people ask for it, but because 20 years after Pop died, the things that killed him are still happening in the South. And that was in her autobiography. For her performance of Strange Fruit at Cafe Society, the waiters would silence the crowd when the music began, during this intro, all of the lights were dimmed and all of the movement in the club had to cease. And when she began singing, only a small spotlight illuminated her face. On the final note, all of the lights went out. And when they came back on, Billy was gone. And if you stop for a moment to think about this song and the lyrics of this song and the atmosphere of her performance, I'm just blown away by how intense and impactful this experience probably was. It's incredible. And Billy's performance and the song itself became a really, really big deal. And as such, she wanted to record it. However, her producers at Columbia found the subject matter too sensitive. The lyrics were very controversial and they wouldn't let her record it with them. On April 20th of 1939, Milt Gabler of Commodore Records agreed that Billy needed to record this song, and he allowed her to make a recording of Strange Fruit with Commodore Records. It immediately became a cultural catalyst and a hit record. The song remained in Billy's repertoire for 20 years. Now, the Commodore release did not get any airplay, but the controversial song did sell very well. Though Gabler said that this was because of the record's other side, the song Fine and Mellow, which was a jukebox hit. Um, Billy later said, quote, The version I recorded for Commodore became my best-selling record. Strange Fruit was the equivalent of a top 20 hit in the 1930s. So yes, it was a really, really big deal, as it should have been. Billy's popularity only continued to increase after the release of Strange Fruit. She received a mention in Time magazine, and she said, quote, I opened Cafe Society as an unknown. I left two years later as a star. I needed the prestige and publicity all right, but you can't pay the rent with it. So this was also a time when she demanded a raise from her manager, Joe Glazer, to which I say it's about dang time. 
So we are still in 1939 and Billy is still at Cafe Society performing Strange Fruit and doing all of the things that that comes along with. At this same time, her mother, Sadie, who was now often referred to as the Duchess, which I love, she opened a restaurant called Mom Holidays. And at this time, she began borrowing a lot of money from Billy to support it. Now, it's important to note that Billy was cool with this. She didn't have a problem helping her mom until she fell on hard times herself. Because again, remember, she's not getting paid super well for all of her success. So one night, she goes to her mom for money because she basically looked at it as kind of an investment situation, right? She's like, I'll go to the person I've given this money to and they will give me money that I need. And her mother actually said no, she wouldn't give Billy any money. And they argued and Billy allegedly shouted, God bless the child that's got his own. From this experience, she wrote the hugely popular song, God Bless the Child, with Arthur Herzog Jr. And this became Billy's most popular slash most covered record ever. It was number 25 on the charts in 1941 and number three on Billboard Songs of the Year. It sold over a million records. So yeah, it's a pretty big deal. In 1976, this song was added to the Grammy Hall of Fame. And a lot of people say that its composition transcends the ages. And it's now a part of the great American songbook and jazz lexicon. At one point, Herzog actually claimed that Billy only contributed a few lines to the lyrics. And he said that she came up with the line, God bless the child, from a dinner conversation that the two had had. The... the <sighs> I'm not into this kind of thing, to be completely honest, but it's important to record. So this is me recording it. The next phase of Billy's life and career takes us to sunny Los Angeles. On June 12th, 1942 in LA, Billy recorded the song Travel in Light with Paul Whiteman for a new label, Capitol Records. At this time, she was still under contract to Columbia so she used the pseudonym Lady Day for the recording. Remember, that is the nickname that was given to her by Lester Young that everybody basically knew her as. And this song, Travel in Light, reached number 23 on the pop charts and number one on the R&B charts. October 11th, 1943, Life magazine said of Billy, she has the most distinctive style of any popular vocalist and is imitated by other vocalists. I think that we can safely say that that's a really big compliment, especially coming from Life Magazine. That's a really big deal. Um, let's talk about a man by the name of Milt Gabler. He owned Commodore Records, and he also became the A&R man for Decca Records. The A&R man does the scouting and overseeing of the artistic development of recording artists and songwriters, just in case you wanted to know. I didn't know that. I had to find that out myself. He signed Billy to Decca Records on August 7th, 1944, when she was 29 years old. She made a bunch of classics at Decca Records, as well as recordings with her very first musical hero, Louis Armstrong. Yes, Queen. This is what I'm talking about. This, These are the stories that I'm here for, the glow-ups that I'm here for, the dreams that I am here to see. She eventually made music with her musical hero. And I love that. I love that so much. Now, listen, 
Billie's first recording for Decca Records was the song Lover Man, and it was one of her biggest hits. I feel like I say that about every recording, but the truth is that Billie pretty much just released hit after hit. The success and the distribution of this song, Lover Man, made Billie a staple in the pop community, which was very, very interesting. And this led to her being able to perform solo concerts, which was exceedingly rare for jazz singers at the time. Milt Gabler said, quote, I made Billie a real pop singer. That was right in her. Billie loved those songs. I don't know exactly how I feel about that, but okay. Billie seems to have had some kind of fire lit under her at this time. She was re-recording a lot of her old songs with Teddy Wilson, as well as new songs that were popular at the time, such as Embraceable You, and her version of this song went into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 2005. But at this time, Billie also had a yearning to really change things up and perhaps spread her musical wings. And so she asked Milt Gabler if she could do some songs that included string instruments. And this was kind of odd for several different reasons. Number one, these arrangements were associated with artists like Ella Fitzgerald and Frank Sinatra, not Billie Holiday. And a lot of people have said, okay, maybe she wanted strings to avoid comparisons between her commercially successful work with Teddy Wilson and everything that was produced after. Because with Wilson, she'd had a small jazz combo behind her. And at Decca Records, everything she did involved strings. So, you know, maybe maybe that's maybe there is some truth to that, the that she didn't really want comparison. She wanted this new thing in her career. But she said of this, quote, I went on my knees to him. I didn't want to do it with the ordinary six pieces. I begged Milt and told him I had to have strings behind me. On October 4th, 1944, Billy proceeded to walk into the studio to record and saw all the string instruments there. And she had to walk right back out of the recording studio because she was so overwhelmed with joy that she just had to take a minute. And I... I love this story for many, many reasons. One of the reasons I love it so much is because the next pieces of the story are quite tragic. So I love it that she was able to have these very positive experiences in her career. So you will probably be shocked to hear that Billie Holiday was actually married at this time, because I know that I was. The fact of the matter is that there's really very little that you can find about Billie's personal life. I had done a lot of research on her, and I was working on the episode, on writing the final draft of the episode, when I finally started to find things about her personal life and her marriages. I was writing this episode before I even realized that she had been married. It's, it's true. At this time, she was married to trombonist Jimmy Monroe. They had been married since August of 1941, and at this time, Billy recorded the song Don't Explain. She wrote this song after she caught her husband, Jimmy Monroe, with lipstick on his collar. And after this song, Billy didn't make any more records until August of 1945, when she re-recorded Don't Explain and actually changed some of the lyrics. So in the original recording, the lyrics, I know you raised Kane" were changed to just say you'll remain. And then you mixed with some dame was changed to what is there to gain. I, you could probably do an entire episode just about that alone, about this moment of her changing the lyrics to this song about her husband. I would love to dive more into it, but unfortunately, 
we don't have time. And also, again, it's nearly impossible to find deep, in-depth information about Billie Holiday's personal life. So we may not even be able to, realistically. But she also recorded the song, You Better Go Now. And Ella Fitzgerald later said that this was her very favorite Billie Holiday song. We are now coming into a part of the episode in which I truly went a little bit crazy. And by that I mean I did a very deep dive into this next phase of Billy's life, this next thing that we're going to talk about. I did it for many different reasons, mostly because it's just really fascinating and there's a lot of aspects to it. Now, unfortunately, you do not get the pages and pages of notes that I originally got when researching it. You just get the summarized version, but that's okay. Let's continue. I am willing to bet that even if you knew a little something about Billie Holiday before listening to this episode, you probably did not know what I'm about to tell you. She actually starred in a movie. It's true, a full-length feature film. In September of 1946, Billie Holiday began acting in her only major film, New Orleans. Listen to me. I am from Idaho. This is me acknowledging that I probably didn't pronounce New Orleans correctly, and this is us moving on. We need to talk about this film, my friends. New Orleans is an American musical romance film starring Arturo de Cordova and Dorothy Patrick, and it was directed by Arthur Lubin. It features a very conventional plot. The, uh, there is a casino owner and a high society opera singer who fall in love during the birth of the blues in New Orleans which I think sounds wildly romantic personally. But besides this fairly standard plot, the film was noteworthy and still is for two major reasons. Number one, it cast Billie Holiday as a maid who was romantically involved with a band leader. And who do you suppose played that band leader? You're correct, Louis Armstrong. So that's freaking amazing. It's also noteworthy because of the music. There was extensive playing of New Orleans-style Dixieland jazz during this whole film. Over 20 songs or versions of songs were featured in whole or in part. So the music, I mean, yes, it was a musical, but I feel like the music was even more a part of it than is even normal for a musical, which is incredible. Um, one of the producers, Jules Levy, wanted to make a film about the history of jazz and Arthur Lubin signed on to direct in July of 1946. There was another producer by the name of Herbert Biberman, and he said, quote, We're not archaeologists. We're trying to be accurate with dates and places, if not names, and still turn out an, enter an entertaining picture. As a side note, Mr. Biberman is also not a historian because archaeology is not the field that he meant to be talking about. But that's a story for a different time. Another really interesting thing about this film is that the National Jazz Foundation actually collaborated with the director, Arthur Lubin, during the filming of this movie, which is incredible. And it's for little things like this. There's a lot of parts and pieces to the story of this movie that make it so fascinating. This is just one of them. There is a lot going on here. Billy was living the dream, starring opposite Louis Armstrong. But listen, the film producer and the film writer particularly were having a ton of issues in the form of backlash. 
they were constantly plagued by racism and McCarthyism. And if you don't know what McCarthyism is, I highly suggest that you go look into it, but I will give you a very brief definition right now. It was a time in American history when there was a really, really deep fear of communism, and particularly in the government and in big industries, people were just witch hunting, basically, for anybody that they thought might be a communist so that they could take them down. Essentially, that's McCarthyism. And McCarthyism was influencing the making of this movie at the time. And um, also, I mentioned, there was also a lot of racism involved. The producer and writer were pressed heavily to lessen Billy and Louie's roles to avoid, quote, the impression that black people created jazz, end quote. I'm pausing. I, there, I, to avoid the impression that black people created jazz. It's almost like they did. You know, I'm not um, surprised because it's America during this time, but I'm just appalled. I'm just truly appalled. And it was, it was this pressure and all of this. There were several of Billy and Louie's scenes that were actually deleted from the film. And I'll continue with my opinion in a second. Billy said about this, quote, they had taken miles of footage of music and scenes, but none of it was left in the picture and very little of me. I know I wore a white dress for a number I did, and that was cut out of the picture. Can you imagine seeing this film the way that it was originally filmed, a version where Billy and Louis Armstrong are in it the way that they were supposed to be? Because I can. And... And guess what? It's freaking amazing. So add that to the high list of atrocities that Billy went through in her life. Thank you. And guys, listen, if you want to add some spice to an already very tangy dish, the producer, Herbert Biberman, was later listed as one of the Hollywood 10 and sent to jail. And you're saying to me, Jordan, what the heck is that? What's the Hollywood 10? Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you because it's, again, a little fascinating piggyback off of this film and an interesting little part in it. And yes, I did a deep dive. But again, we'll just get a summary. So who were the Hollywood 10? They were 10 motion picture producers, directors, and screenwriters who appeared before the House Un-American Activities Committee in October of 1947 and they refused to answer questions regarding their possible communist affiliations, McCarthyism. After spending time in prison for contempt of Congress, they were mostly blacklisted by Hollywood studios. None of them could work in Hollywood ever again, essentially. These men were Alva Bessie, Herbert Biberman, Lester Cole, Edward Dimitrick, Ring Lardner Jr., John Howard Lawson, Albert Maltz, Samuel Ornitz, Adrian Scott, and Dalton Trumbo. This group also originally included German writer Bertolt Brecht, but he fled the country the day after his inquest, which we love for him. The remaining 10 were again voted in contempt of Congress on November 24th, 1947, and they were convicted in federal court the next year. They were all, all given sentences of six months to one year. While in prison, Edward Dimitrick 
broke. Most of them broke, actually, and they agreed to cooperate. But Dimitrik in particular admitted to being a communist, and he also gave the names of 26 other communists. And get this, he was the only one who was not severely blacklisted by the film industry. He was the only one that was able to continue working. Why? Well, because he snitched. And I have, there's a lot, there's a lot. However, let's continue, let's move on. Most of these men, again, were never employed ever again in Hollywood, but some were able to write some scripts under different pen names and things like that. The blacklist disappeared in the early 1960s and Trumbo and Lardner subsequently wrote some more screenplays under their own names. However, that was a whole phase where their careers were literally ruined. So that was a wild ride, incredibly wild, but there you go. So that's part of what was going on at the time that they were all filming New Orleans. So, but there's more, like I said, There's more going on here during the filming of this movie. And this is the part of the story where we have to start to talk about Billie Holiday's struggle with drug addiction. Sadly, it is a fairly well-known fact that she was heavily addicted to heroin. I wasn't able to find a ton of detail on it, interestingly enough, but Billie once said that she first began using hard drugs in the early 1940s. Shortly after her marriage to Jimmy Monroe, she became involved with a trumpeter by the name of Joe Guy, who was also her drug dealer. And perhaps this is where it all began. So anyway, as you can probably imagine, Billy's drug addictions were a really big problem on the set of New Orleans, along with everything else that was going on on set at the time. Billy was earning more than $1,000 a week and spending most of it on heroin. Joe Guy, remember her drug dealer, he actually traveled to Hollywood during the filming and he supplied her with drugs. When her manager, Joe Glazer, found him on set, he kicked him off and banned him from coming in again. After the film finished in 1947, Billy divorced Monroe and cut off all contact with her drug dealer, Joe Guy, which is a brilliant step forward for her and we applaud it. So let's get back to Billy's musical career. Again, we're in the late 1940s. At this time, she began recording a number of slow, sentimental ballads that were, again, very popular because it's Billie Holiday. But there were also some people in the media who were expressing concern, essentially, about Billie and her career. In 1946, Metronome Magazine had said, quote, There's a danger that Billie's present formula will wear thin, but up to now it's wearing well. And the New York Herald Tribune had... um, written about a concert that she had given and they said that the performance had little variation in melody and no change in tempo it's interesting that at this time a lot of people are expressing concern about her career and whether or not it's going well or whether or not it can last because a lot of people see 1947 as billy's commercial peak at this time she had earned two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in the previous three years And no, I didn't even adjust that for inflation. Lame. Let me know. Do the math. Let me know. So this part of the story, I should just, I mean, I did at the top of the episode. I told you it was a sad story. So I probably don't need to keep saying this part is sad, but this part is sad. So on May 16th, 1947, Billie Holiday was arrested for the possession of narcotics in her New York apartment. On May 27th, 
um, she was brought to court for the case, the United States versus Billie Holiday. And she said that it really did feel that way because during the trial, she heard that her lawyer wasn't going to be coming to help her. So she said, quote, in plain English, <laughs> she said, quote, in plain English, that meant that no one in the world was interested in looking out for me, which is awful. So you can see why, you know, United States versus Billie Holiday, you can very much see why it actually felt that way. Not even her lawyer was going to come. I don't even know how that happens. How does your lawyer just not show up? I, if you know, let me know. So she was actually at this trial. She was very dehydrated. She couldn't hold down any food. She pled guilty and asked to be taken to the hospital. And the DA actually spoke in her defense, which is incredible. There's just so much about this we could dive into. But she was sentenced to Alderson Federal Prison Camp in West Virginia. A drug possession conviction was a really, really big deal for Billie Holiday as a performer. And I'm going to tell you why. It made it so that she lost her New York City cabaret card. This card was essentially a license that gave her permission to perform anywhere that alcohol was sold. And having this conviction meant that she lost this license. So after this, she was only able to play concert venues and theaters. And um, this did take a toll on her earnings. She was released from Alderson Federal Prison Camp early on March 16th, 1948, because of good behavior. And when she got back, her pianist, Bobby Tucker, and her dog, Mister, were waiting for her. Her dog was so happy to see her that he leapt up on her and knocked her to the ground. And a nearby woman thought that the dog was attacking her and started screaming. So this crowd starts gathering. All of these reporters show up. And Billy later said that she might as well have had a huge get-together with all of the press for all of the kerfuffle it, it made, you know. And it's just, it's, it, yeah. And I just, I love it that her dog was that happy to see her, but it really turned into a scene, didn't it? So let's continue. At this time, her manager is no longer Joe Glazer. Her manager is Ed Fishman. He had fought with Joe Glazer in order to be Billy's manager. And he came up with the idea of Billy doing a comeback concert at Carnegie Hall. She was really afraid to do this because of her arrest. She thought that maybe people wouldn't accept her. Nobody would show up. But on March 27th, 1948, she performed to a sold-out crowd. Listen, her popularity at this precise moment was kind of weird because she didn't have a current hit record. She had tons and tons of hits, but not, she had nothing new that was, like, charting. So it's crazy. There were 32 songs on the set list. During the show, somebody sent her a box of gardenias. Listen, I realized I say that a lot, but listen... Billie Holiday had a trademark. She wore white gardenias in her hair and she loved it. So during the show, somebody sent her these gardenias. She took them out of the box and stuck them on the side of her head without even thinking about it. But there was a hat pin in the flowers and she unknowingly stuck it into her head. And she said, quote, I didn't feel anything until the blood started rushing down in my eyes and ears. After the third curtain call, she passed out and had to be carried off of stage, which is insane. So not only is she performing this completely sold out iconic concert, but then she just starts bleeding profusely out of her head. Like it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. But it was an incredible concert and a great thing that she was able to do. After this, Billy had a brief Broadway show called Holiday on Broadway, 
that debuted in April tw- April 27th, 1948. It actually sold out, which was incredible, but it closed after three weeks, which is less incredible. And also in 1948, she played the Ebony Club. Listen, remember what I told you like two seconds ago? This was illegal for her to do because she didn't have a cabaret card. However, her manager thought that he could probably get her cabaret card back. So he just allowed her to play without one. How scary is that? And she was terrified that something was going to happen, but nothing did. Sadly, Billie Holiday was arrested again on January 22nd, 1949 in her hotel room in the Hotel Mark Twain in San Francisco. By the late 1940s, despite Billie's popularity and her concert power, her singles really weren't being played much on the radio. And a lot of people think that maybe this was because of her overall reputation. People did know that she had a hard time with drugs and this was very looked down upon. It still is, but that's a story for another time. So she probably, here's the thing. She probably made the charts, but at the time charting wasn't as well kept as it is today. So we, we don't really know for sure. And again, I mentioned this earlier, but the loss of her cabaret card had greatly reduced her earnings. She hadn't had proper record royalties until DECA, so her main revenue had really always been concerts. And the problems worsened when her records went out of print in the 1950s. In her later years, Billie Holiday rarely received any loyal, any royalties. In 1958, for example, she received a total royalty of $11 which is very awful. In the late 1950s, her lawyer failed to register the songs that she had written or co-written with the Broadcast Music Incorporation, which in turn cost her a lot of revenue. In 1952, this is when Billy begins a five-year run with the record label Norman Grant's Clef slash Verve. Grant's was an entrepreneur behind the Jazz at the Philharmonic series, and he was very sensitive to the needs of the artists. So he put Billy back into small group settings from which her genius had originally grown. I think that she really needed this at her at this point in her career. Together, they made roughly 100 new recordings, constituting Billy's first forays into the high fidelity album era. At this time, her voice became more rugged and, quote, shockingly intimate. She put a new signature sound on the scores of stirring ballads, such as her self-reflecting composition, Lady Sings the Blues, and she expanded her repertoire while also re-recording many of her classics in a new style. She redefined herself as the torch singer, which is a whole thing. It's just a passionate singer, essentially. You can look it up. And she appeared twice on TV's Tonight Show with Steve Allen on CBS's historic The Sound of Jazz program. But get this, my friends. Billie Holiday also toured Europe. Yet another fascinating thing that I did not know about her. She first toured Europe in 1954 and was part of the Leonard Feather package, which is lovely because she later became godmother to Leonard's daughter, who is a singer by the name of Billy Lorraine Feather. Beautiful. The tour group started in Stockholm in January of 1954, and they went to Germany, the Netherlands, Paris, and Switzerland. The party consisted of Billy, Buddy DeFranco, Red Norvo, Carl Drinkard, Elaine Layton, Sonny Clark, Beryl Booker, 
Jimmy Rainey, and Red Mitchell. There is a recording of a live set in Germany released as Lady Love, Billie Holiday, which I just love it that she got to tour Europe. It's beautiful. We briefly mentioned earlier that at this time, Billie's overall reputation was not great. This is why her music was rarely featured on the radio. She just had a lot of struggles and the entire world seemed to know about it. There was drug use, drinking, and her relationships with abusive men really caused her health to deteriorate. She actually appeared on the ABC reality series, The Comeback Story, to discuss all of the attempts to overcome her misfortunes, which to be honest, seems quite progressive for the 1950s. I'm gonna say it. The year is now 1956, and our girl, Billie Holiday, decides to release her autobiography entitled Lady Sings the Blues, and it was ghostwritten by William Dufty, and again, published in 1956. William Dufty was a writer and editor for the New York Post, and he was also married to one of Billie's really good friends at the time. Billie actually later became a godmother to their son, which is beautiful. So William Dufty helped Billy write her autobiography very, very quickly. And this happened after a series of conversations that they had with each other in um, William Dufty's apartment. And he decided, it's really interesting the way that he framed this book and helped her write it. He wanted to let Billy tell her story in her own way. And in order to do that, he drew on the work of earlier interviewers and kind of built off of it. And Again, he did this because he wanted her to be able to tell her own story, and that's the way that it should be. I'm honestly so grateful that Billy had somebody like this in her corner to help her with her autobiography because it's a really important thing, and it's I'm just it's really great. So to accompany her autobiography, Billy Holiday also released the LP "Lady Sings the Blues" in June of 1956. It had four new tracks. Lady Sings the Blues, Too Marvelous for Words, Willow Weep for Me, and I Thought About You, and eight new recordings of her biggest hits. A review of the album was released by Billboard magazine on December 22nd, 1956, and it said that it was a worthy musical compliment to her autobiography. Quote, Holiday is in good voice now, and these new reading re- recordings will be much appreciated by her following. And this article also called Strange Fruit and God Bless the Child Classics, which they are. So this goodness continues. In November of 1956, so before the Billboard magazine review, Billy performed two more concerts at Carnegie Hall to packed, packed audiences. And she, the live recording of these, of these concerts is actually released as an album, which is great. So the liner notes in this album were written by a man named Gilbert Milstein of the New York Times and a man by the name of Nat Hentoff from Downbeat magazine. Both of these men were at both concerts and Gilbert Milstein actually narrated the concerts. Interestingly enough, interspersed among the songs, he read passages from her autobiography. I cannot even imagine how incredible these concerts must have been. 
But Milstein wrote, it's a quite long quote, so stick with me here. Quote, the narration began with the ironic account of her birth in Baltimore and ended very nearly shyly with her hope for love and a long life with my man at her side. It was evident even then that Miss Holiday was ill. I had known her casually over the years and I was shocked at her physical weakness. Her rehearsal had been desultory. Her voice sounded teeny and trailed off. Her body sagged tiredly. But I will not forget the metamorphosis that night. The lights went down, the musicians began to play, and the narration began. Miss Holiday stepped from behind the curtains into the white spotlight awaiting her, wearing a white evening gown and white gardenias in her black hair. She was erect and beautiful, poised and smiling. And when the first section of narration was ended, she sang, with strength undiminished, with all of the art that was hers. I was very much moved. In the darkness, my face burned and my eyes. I recall only one thing. I smiled, end quote. Hentoff said, quote, Throughout the night, Billy was in superior form to what had sometimes been the case in the last years of her life. Not only was there assurance of phrasing and intonation, but there was also an outgoing warmth, a palpable eagerness to reach out and touch the audience. And there was mocking wit, a smile that was often lightly evident on her lips and her eyes, as if for once, she could accept the fact that there were people who did dig her. The beat flowed in her uniquely sinuous, supple way of moving the story along. The words became her own experiences, and coursing through it all was ladies' sound, a texture simultaneously steel-edged and yet soft inside, a voice that was almost unbearably wise in dissolution and yet still childlike, again at the center. The audience was hers from before she sang, greeting her and saying goodbye with heavy, loving applause. And at one time, the, music, the musicians, too, applauded. It was a night when Billy was on top, undeniably the best and most honest jazz singer alive. Okay, so I decided to insert transitional music again very quickly there for a reason. I wanted you to have just a couple of seconds to sit with those quotes about those concerts because they were incredible and very moving. And now we can continue on because there's some more quite sad things that we still need to talk about. So continuing on. Soon after this, she had a performance of Fine and Mellow on CBS's The Sound of Jazz program. And she did this song with her friend Lester Young. You guys remember Lester. Both of them were less than two years away from their deaths, which is absolutely heart-wrenching. And this performance was very memorable for a lot of people just because of the interplay between her voice and his playing. It was... It was incredible. Lester Young died on March, in March, excuse me, of 1959. Billy desperately wanted to sing at his funeral, but her request was denied, which absolutely breaks my heart. I don't have any more information on that. It's just, it's just very sad that she wasn't able to sing at the funeral of one of her dearest friends. In March of 1957, Billie Holiday married a man by the name of Louis McKay, I believe is how you pronounce his last name, and he was a mob enforcer. Like most men in her life, he was very abusive, 
And at the time of her death, they were actually separated. But McKay had plans to start a chain of Billie Holiday vocal studios. You know, just cash in on her name. Why not? However, let's, you know, we're going to go back a little bit. In 1958, Billie signed with Columbia Records. It was the longtime home base of A&R man John Hammond, who, if you'll remember, had been instrumental in Billie's early career. And this is where and when she created her swan song masterpiece album, Lady in Satin. It was her last major recording, this 1958 album, Lady in Satin. It had the backing of a 40-piece orchestra conducted and arranged by Ray Ellis, who was a, a really, really big deal. In 1997, so like 40 years later, Ray Ellis was talking about this album. And he said, quote, I would say that the most emotional moment was her listening to the playback of I'm a Fool to Want You. There were tears in her eyes. After we finished the album, I went into the control room and listened to all the takes. I must admit I was unhappy with her performance, but I was just listening musically instead of emotionally. It wasn't until I heard the final mix a few weeks later that I realized how great her performance really was. And this album, Lady in Satin, was released after Billie Holiday passed away. I'm really glad that we have this little moment, um, this narrative from Ray Ellis, because I think you can say this about so many different songs and a lot of different kinds of music. And I also think that it's very, very particular to Billie Holiday herself, because if you remember, she did not have any kind of musical training. She was not schooled in music. She just got up there and sang and she had her own distinct style and love for the music. And the fact that he was able to eventually get there and understand that, I think that that's what Billy wanted in her songs and in, in her performances. She wanted to connect to the audience. She wanted to tell a story. She wanted to connect them to the emotion and what was happening in the music. It wasn't necessarily about all the technicalities. So I think it's really beautiful that... Ray Ellis was able to have that moment of realization. So in 1959, Billie Holiday was diagnosed with cirrhosis of the liver. She initially stopped drinking on her doctor's orders, but she did relapse. By May of 1959, she had lost 20 pounds and she was already very small. Her manager, Joe Glazer, jazz critic, jazz critic Leonard Feather, and photojournalist Alan Morrison, all of them again, were Billy's really good friends. We've talked about them in this episode. All of them begged her to go to the hospital, which she wouldn't do. On May 31st of 1959, she was eventually taken to the Metropolitan Hospital in New York for treatment of liver and heart disease. And this part of the story is not only heartbreaking, but it is wild, people. It is, it's actually wild. While she is in the hospital being treated for liver and heart disease, narcotics police come to her hospital room and claim that they find heroin there. A grand jury was summoned to indict her and she was arrested, handcuffed to her bed and placed under police guard while in the hospital dying. Isn't that crazy? There's actually a whole, like a whole thing about it. I had to cut it out because this episode was really, really long, but I'll tell you a little bit about it anyway. 
there's this whole thing where we're pretty sure that this heroin was actually planted in her room and that people had gone in there to feed, like feed her drugs essentially. And while she was not coherent and it's like, it's crazy. Like if I told you all about it, it would probably make you even more sad, but there's a lot to it. So if you want to go looking more into this, I suggest, I suggest that. On July 15th of 1959, Billie Holiday received her last rites, and she died at 3.10 a.m. on July 17th, 1959, at the age of 44. The cause of death was officially pulmonary edema and heart failure caused by cirrhosis of the liver. It is just astonishingly sad that she died so young, and incredible that she was able to accomplish so much. But again, how much did we miss by Billie Holiday passing away so early in her life? I don't know. Probably a lot. Probably a lot of really, really good stuff. So thousands of mourners attended Billie's funeral. The overflow crowd lined the sidewalks, which is very good. Honorary pallbearers included jazz greats like Benny Goodman and Mary Lou Williams. She is not buried in Woodlawn Cemetery, which is a very well-known spot for famous jazz musicians like Duke and Ellington, Celia Cruz, Miles Davis, and Lionel Hampton. Instead, she is buried way out in the Bronx in a cemetery called St. Raymond Cemetery. And this is actually a whole huge thing. I had no idea there was so much controversy surrounding Billy's resting place, but there is, and we'll talk, we'll talk about it just a little bit. So there is a professor at Columbia University by the name of Farah Jasmine Griffin, and she wrote the book, If You Can't Be Free, Be a Mystery, in search of Billy Holiday. So if anybody's an expert in Billy Holiday, it's probably her. And she wrote, quote, I think people assume she's in Woodlawn Cemetery because that's where everyone else is. So people assume that unless you go looking, end quote. So, my friends, the question is, why is Billie Holiday buried in St. Raymond Cemetery? Well, according to Donald Clark, the author of the Billie Holiday biography, Wishing on the Moon, quote, Probably because it was cheap. End quote. And no, I'm not kidding. So the story goes that when Billie Holiday passed away, her life savings was found strapped to her leg, and it was $750. Decisions around her death were left to her estranged husband, Louis McKay, because they were technically still married, so he got to have the say in all of this. Donald Clark says that McKay was a quote, wannabe gangster. He did not pay for Billy's funeral. It was reportedly funded by a wealthy fan of jazz named Michael Grace. And he allegedly offered to pay for Billy to be buried next to Babe Ruth at an upscale New York cemetery. But McKay refused. Donald Clark says, quote, he took over because he wanted to and because he could. Nobody is a fan of um, Louis McKay, and I think that's because he was the worst. So, 
let's continue. McKay had Billy buried next to her mother, Sadie, in St. Raymond's. Now, granted, this is probably what Billy would have wanted. However, I don't... There's this, this feeling runs through this whole controversial story that he didn't really... He didn't necessarily bury her there because that's what she wanted. He was not in the business of leaving Billy with something good, essentially. However, well, however, no, that's not the right word because, listen, and I can, I can back up everything I've said because a year after Billy had passed away, she still didn't have a tombstone. Her plot wasn't even marked, and a visitor described it as a, quote, small square of gray, mean-looking ground. So the news spread really quickly that Louis McKay had failed to give Billie Holiday a tombstone, and with the spread of the news, the outrage of this just grew. And in May of 1960, Downbeat Magazine wrote that it was a, quote, situation that would have appealed to Billie Holiday's sharp sense of the ironic. Where were all the people who had made money off the singer during her life? Yeah, interesting. And Downbeat Magazine started a collection to pay for a tombstone for Billie Holiday. But Stupid Husband objected again and apparently announced, quote, that he intended to have Lady and Sadie's remains moved to the St. Paul section of the cemetery and that he would erect a monument at the cost of $3,500. Now, today, Billy and her mother Sadie share a tombstone. In Billy's 44 years of life, she suffered through pretty much everything that you can suffer. She suffered through poverty, racism, addiction, abuse, you name it. She was hounded by media and often made headlines not in a good way. So, a lot of people think that perhaps she would have liked the solitude and tranquility of St. Raymond's. Our professor, Farah Jasmine Griffin, points this out. There's a singer by the name of Queen Esther, and she says, quote, Billy's here, far removed from everyone. She isn't harassed. She's having some respite, some peace. And this singer, Queen Esther, and our professor, they actually collaborated on a musical about Billy, which I think is just so lovely. So, but here's the thing. There are many people that would like to see Billy honored with a mausoleum. But Griffin says, quote, there's something about the conventionality of it that's nice too. It's not so much where they're buried, it's how we remember them. And it really isn't that just the case for pretty much anybody. I mean, you know what I'm trying to say? I, I'm very grateful that Billie Holiday now has a tombstone, and I love it that she's with her mother. And I understand the desire to maybe give her a little bit more of a fancier place to rest. I get it. But I think that overall, I think it ended well, and I think that she's probably in the best place for her. So what remains of Billie Holiday today? In 2023, what is her legacy and her impact well, we're going to go over it just a little bit. In 1961, she was voted into the Downbeat Hall of Fame. Soon after, Columbia reissued nearly 100 of her early records. In 1972, 
Diana Ross's portrayal of Billie Holiday in the film Lady Sings the Blues was nominated for an Oscar and won a Golden Globe. And Billie Holiday received several posthumous awards. She's in the Grammy Hall of Fame. She's in the Ertegun Jazz Hall of Fame. She's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which is crazy. So she's not in there because of... She's not in there because she's a rock star, okay? Billie Holiday's not a rock star. She is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because she changed jazz forever. And thus, she had a huge, hugely magnificent impact on rock and roll. Because if you know anything about rock and roll, you know that it pretty much just begged, borrowed, and stole from jazz and gospel rhythm and blues. But that's a story for another time. Billie is also on the Jazz Wall of Fame. In 1985, a statue of Billy was erected in Baltimore, and the statue was completed in 1993 with additional panels of images inspired by her song, Strange Fruit. In 2019, it was announced that New York City would build a statue honoring Billy near Queensboro Hall. Billy always said that she wanted her voice to sound like an instrument. This is what, I think that this really comes from her love of Louis Armstrong and Bessie Smith. This, I think that you can really trace her style and everything back to that. And she, because her, you know, your voice is an instrument. And Billy, I think more than any other artist, pretty much ever, is able, was able to use her voice as an instrument in different ways and really impact music. It's incredible. Um, continuing on, again, we mentioned that the white gardenias were her trademark. Her image is on a postage stamp, and you guys know how I feel about postage stamps. She also received Time Magazine's Song of the Century Award. Very well deserved. There are tons and tons of biographies about Billie Holiday. And listen to this. I heard varying reports. Okay, I looked everywhere and I, and I tried to find it, but I can't. So here's the thing. I read one in one place that she won 12 Grammys posthumously. I also heard that it was only four, but whatever the number, she did receive a Grammy for best historical album, which is absolutely stunning and more than appropriate. So very, very briefly, earlier in our episode. So briefly, you may have not even recognized it. I mentioned Frank Sinatra. And due to who I am as a person, we're going to circle back to him for just a minute. It's actually important. Come with me on this. Frank Sinatra was, of course, a huge fan of Billie Holiday. If you know anything about Frank other than about his music, you know this. I mean, he, he loved Billie Holiday. And it's because she had influenced him and his dreams long before he ever became somebody in the music industry. In fact, as a young man, Frank recalled watching Billy perform on 52nd Street. And these performances greatly impacted his life and future career. Again, these moments where legends are interacting before they are legends. I love it. I love the image of Billie Holiday performing on 52nd Street and a young Frank Sinatra watching her. And neither of them know what kind of future they're going to have. And it's it's just astonishing. So her death actually 
completely devastated Frank and very much broke his heart. And it's important to note this because many in the music industry felt the same way. Billie's life was incredibly controversial and there was a lot that was said about her, but it's important to note that pretty much everybody in the music industry loved Billie Holiday and were very, very heartbroken by her passing. In 1958, Frank Sinatra sat down with Ebony Magazine to talk about Billie Holiday and her impact, and he said, quote, with few exceptions, every major pop singer in the U.S. during her generation has been touched in some way by her genius. It is Billie Holiday who was, and still remains, the greatest single musical influence on me. Lady Day is unquestionably the most important influence on American popular singing in the last 20 years. I wanted to end our episode with this quote because it seems to encompass so much of who Billie Holiday was and how much her talent inspired and reached people and made a difference in the world. Not only did she inspire the thousands and thousands of people who bought her records or came to her concerts or saw her perform in any way, she inspired everybody in the music industry. She had so many setbacks and so many hard things in her life, and yet she was still able to change the face of music as we know it. I don't, I, I, there's no way to know really where music would be today without Billie Holiday, but it would be a very different place, certainly. And um, it's so important to acknowledge that she was just such a special person truly. And she gave so much of herself to the world. She put so much into her music and it was such a gift to everybody. And I think that's so, so important to remember about Billie Holiday. There was so much more to her career and to her art than just having a career or creating music. And I think that you can really tell that in her songs. You don't have to listen to her for very long before you realize how many layers are there. And she was able to bring that across in a very, very unique way. Like I said, we are at the end of our episode now. Um, I thought this episode was going to be much longer than it is. So this is really interesting. We are pretty much tied with Dame Agatha for time. Honestly, I wish I could have included more. I cut out a lot of stuff from this episode. I had probably five or six more pages of information that of deep dives of side roads I took, things that were just insane and so incredible about Billy's life and about the people that she interacted with every day. One of the important I mean there are so many important things about Billy. I'm just going on now, but stay with me. Again, we've talked about her influence. She was able to influence everybody she met in one way or another. She was just hugely influential. She had such a presence in her life and in her art. And that really, it just can't be overstated. It's so huge. So I highly recommend that you look more into Billie Holiday. Please go listen to her music, please, especially Strange Fruit. The fact that it is still very very powerful today makes sense because it's Billie Holiday and it's an in incredible set of lyrics or a poem, whatever way you want to look at it, it's incredible. And sadly, it's something that we still need to be aware of today. 
So again, I highly recommend you go listen to Strange Fruit if you want to do anything more about looking into Billy herself. Thank you so much for being here with me today. It was kind of a heavy episode, but we also had some fun. And I think that that is also something that Billy would have enjoyed because I didn't include this. I should have said this earlier. Billy loved to laugh. She was a very, very funny person. She very much enjoyed irony. And everybody knew that about her. So I'm glad that we've had some fun here as well. Again, thank you for being here with me today and learning about Billie Holiday. You can give me a follow on Instagram at notstrictlyhistory underscore podcast. Feel free to send me a DM or you can send me a Gmail at notstrictlyhistory at gmail.com. If you want to request an episode or join the conversation or I don't know, pretty much anything, it's up to you. Thanks again, everybody, and I'll see you next time on Not Strictly History.